Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And today we are in the same place, which is quite unusual. It is. Yeah, we're in Coogee, a suburb of Sydney in New South Wales. Which probably explains the occasional squawk in the background. Yes, yeah, so there's some rainbow lorikeets that live in the trees outside my house and they think that they're going to get fed every time that they see people anywhere near a window. And they're incredibly pretty, but the noise is, it's not good. No. But apart from that, it's a wonderful place. Even in winter, it's sunny and just a fabulous day walking along the coast. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about something which is probably not really very beautiful, not really very lovely, and not really as fantastic as being here. It's it's some of the hardest stuff in emergency medicine. It's about thinking the unthinkable in paediatric emergency medicine. Yeah, so we thought we'd talk about some child protection stuff because that's important. And if you don't think about it in advance, it can either be missed altogether or be quite problematic for people who are involved. So one of the things I've said in the past is that for the first three years of my emergency medicine career, I did not see a single case of child abuse. Do you think that's true? No. <laughs> I probably saw, and that really worries me actually when I look back at my practice. I mean, the other days, three years ago, three years at the beginning of my career is some time ago, so it's not in the current state, and I think we're much better at it now. But I un- undoubtedly have the view that I have seen many more cases of child abuse and non-accidental injury, etc., than I've ever spotted. And increasingly, it's, it, it is something that worries me. I think we could be a little bit better at doing that. And I think that's what we're going to be trying to talk about today, about how do we handle difficult conversations what do we look for? What do we spot? And, and why sometimes those barriers exist to us having what are, let's face it, pretty difficult, difficult conversations. But it is, it's difficult to think about that kind of stuff as well, because it's not, no one wants to think about children being intentionally hurt. And then there's the fact that all of the actions you are required to undertake, if you start to have those sort of suspicions that something untoward is going on, they can be quite labour intensive and quite confronting to you as a clinician. And they can mean lots of phone calls and lots of faxing and filling in forms. And everybody's got a too difficult light that sometimes comes on, which is not a reason not to do that stuff. But it is. It's true, though. I mean, it does mean that there's a barrier to actually taking the step sometimes. So that can potentially make mean that people's thresholds for pressing the button are possibly too high. Mm. And at the end of the day, there's lots and lots of cases, we won't name them here, but there's lots and lots of cases where children have come to very significant harm, even been killed. And when the investigations have been undertaken, the attendance at the emergency department is not particularly an uncommon event prior to the, the final act of very severe injury or even death. Yeah, so I think it might be helpful to start off by thinking, when should we be thinking about child protection? What are the things that are going to make us suspicious that there's something not right? Okay, so one of the first things that you talk about, perhaps when I've heard you talk about this, is when the triage nurse tells you to be worried about something. I genuinely think that's incredibly important. Our triage nurses are fabulous in the paediatric emergency medicine department, and they will often give you a quick heads up as I'm uncomfortable about this. It might be about the interaction. It might be about the injury. It might be about the history. It could be several different things. We'll talk about those in a second. But that just X factor, spidey sense, gestalt, judgment, whatever you want to call it. If somebody comes up to you and says, I'm worried about this and I think it might be an inappropriate presentation, an unusual injury, I'm worried about the state of this child, you really must take that very seriously. Yeah, and the same goes for other people who have a part in that patient journey through the emergency department. So I've had a a significant child protection issue flagged by a receptionist who phoned the child's school because there was an uncertainty about the child's date of birth, which could have been cultural, but actually that established a whole load of other stuff that we otherwise wouldn't have known about. Okay. And play therapists? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who's met the child. therapists, doctors. Radiographers. Yes, I've had them from the radiographers as well. So it's, it's, it's really interesting you point that out. It's a, it's, a, it's a real team game, this one. And the point being that whoever flags this up, 
then the team should respond and take it seriously. Having said that, there are some things which will always arouse suspicion. So the things that you'll read in textbooks, things like injuries not consistent with a child's developmental age, so long bone fractures in non-mobile children. And we always hear about spiral fractures. And I think it's always important to say that spiral fractures can happen in Mm -hmm. children who are toddling. They often get their feet stuck in particular and they'll twist as they try to free themselves and fall and they can have spiral fractures of the femur by that mechanism. But it's those ones we see in children who aren't walking, who aren't mobile, that we need to be suspicious about. And there'll always be a case somewhere where a a rational explanation has been given and proven to be true. But these are things which should arouse suspicion and then you take it on from there. It's rare, I find, that you'll be absolutely definitive when you first see a patient and ask, there's definitely this. I mean, it does happen occasionally, but it's, it's unusual. It's a stepping point for further investigation. So what other things should we be looking for? So we might see particular patterns of injury, and I mean specifically patterns like implement marks. So they might be hand marks, finger marks, ligature marks, bite marks, cigarette burns. All of these things can have innocent explanations, but they're usually pretty clear of how that's occurred all the time. The question you've got to have in your head is, does this make sense with what I'm seeing? So things like bruises on cheeks, buttocks, abdomen. I mean, they shouldn't really have many bruises at all before they're walking. No, absolutely not. And Although the, there was some paper that looked at bruises in a well children clinic and found that petechiae and bruising were present in about 15% of these children. Now, whether that tells us that there's a whole load of child protection stuff we're missing or that particularly for petechiae, which can represent non-extensional injury, they can be found in well children as well. So it's just about being aware, but also always thinking of having that in the back of your mind. And then there's certain radiographic appearances and certain radiological patterns that we look for. So you talked so before about spar fractures, that's one. You can have these typical metaphyseal chip fractures. They're supposedly pathognomonic for, for inflicted injury in children. But I have seen similar appearances with osteomyelitis in kids. So again, it's all about being humble, having that in the back of your mind, but always sort of recognising there can be other things going on. And again, things like skull fractures. So the commonest skull bone fractured accidentally is in children... Parietal bone? Parietal bone, and the common, commonest bone fractured non-accidentally is... Uh, I'm going to get the parietal bone. It is the parietal bone. So that you know, just having a skull fracture, having a parietal fracture doesn't tell you anything. Probably also worth mentioning at this point, and I think this is data that came out from Ross Fisher when he was talking about paediatric trauma, is that major trauma, particularly isolated head injuries, quite a high proportion of those. I think off the top of my head it was about a third or maybe even more are actually due to non-accidental injuries. So even in our major trauma patients, we need to be cognizant of that. Yeah, I think the TARN data showed that, particularly the under ones with the high ISS scores, and I think there's something like 10 to 20% of the under ones with major trauma injuries have a non-accidental injury as an explanation. And that makes sense when you think about it, because how does an under one get enough momentum to have a constellation of significant injury? They can't do that without an adult, so it's either that they've been in a car driven by an adult or injured by some uh, adult-mediated mechanism. I'm just going to nip into the podcast here to just clarify something. I talk about the possibility of head injury in small children having non-accidental injury rates of around about 30%. Actually, that data from the TARN database is somewhat more alarming, really. In the group of patients who enter the TARN database, and we we have to accept that that's a group of patients who get admitted for more than three days or end up on ITU or end up um, dying, then so the very very severe end. Amongst that group of patients, actually the incidence of non-accidental injury is 77%, and that's in a paper from the UK TARN, which Ross Fisher, our colleague, was a co-author on. So 
it is a subset. It doesn't mean that it's 77% in every patient who turns up in the emergency department, but it really does mean that when we see particularly children under the age of one who really shouldn't have major head injuries, then the suspicion of an accidental injury is really quite high. So there's got the sort of stuff that they turn up with on the day. Are there any other things that we should be looking out for in terms of patterns of attendance and things like that? Yeah, so that's something that quite a lot of emergency departments will flag up to you that I know ours does when I'm working in Sydney and I know that when I worked in Manchester that ED would flag up how many attendances the child had had in total and ours currently tells us how many we've had in the last 12 months. So that, again, that's not that doesn't necessarily tell you that something untoward is going on, but if you're seeing strange histories, strange injuries and multiple attendances, that might be a prompt to think about some of the wider social stuff that's going on in that family, for example, and maybe key into the school nurse or to ask some more questions. Okay, so that's kind of injury patterns that we've talked about. Anything else that you think we should do, you know, tips, practices, rules, stuff like that, that we can put into our practice to make sure that we don't miss these things? Yes, so if you've got a child who's non-verbal, for whatever reason they're attending, I would strip them off completely, make sure you've looked at every part of them. That means you're going to not miss your particular rashes, which is really important for a child who's unwell. So even if they're coming with illness, you might still pick up injury things and you will potentially see injuries that you might not have seen otherwise. And for children who are verbal, no matter how young they are, I always try to give them an opportunity to explain what's happened if they've come with an injury or to ask why they've come to the emergency department if they're unwell. And the older the child is, obviously, the more reliable that history is going to be. But that's a good communication practice for them anyway. And some children will directly disclose that something has happened. Mm -hmm. And then the older child, and they're obviously more likely to have a better ability to talk through what's been going on. But they have different things going on in their head and they have a better understanding, perhaps, of the implications of what may have happened. So their approach with them is going to be slightly different again. Particularly, I don't really have a clear cutoff for this, but usually over about 11 or 12, I'll offer the child an opportunity to speak to me on their own. And that's my standard practice. So I say, this is my standard practice is to see you with your parent and then see you on your own. And I'll see the parent on their own as well, if that's going to help. And in that face-to-face interaction, I will do a heads assessment. But that's a, we talk about drugs, alcohol, sexual practice, smoking. So I'll do a bit of health promotion kind of stuff and maybe sexuality questions and all the stuff they might not want to talk about in front of their parents. But you can also take the opportunity to make sure that there's not other stuff going on in their life that they want some help with. And do you, when you say you do that on your own, do you do that with a chaperone? I think that's a good idea. It's not always practical because sometimes it's a bit more spontaneous than that. But if you can do them, that's a great idea. Yeah, I think I tend to try and take a chaperone in. My concern with that is sometimes it can then feel a little bit more threatening if you've got more people in the room. But from my own practice, I think probably for my own peace of mind, I do tend to take a chaperone in. Um, but then I'm probably scary looking than you. So we should just mention the HEADS assessment is a well-recognised paediatric tool. So that stands for asking about home environment asking about education, employment, eating and exercise, asking about activities and peer relationships, drug use, which includes cigarettes and alcohol, sexuality, and then the last S, because it's the two S's for suicide and depression. And that's a really useful tool for just chatting through with young people and giving them an opportunity to talk to someone sensible about these kind of things. So one of the things that does come up in the in the sort of the X factor judgment gestalt type thing is this interaction between child and parents and observation of that. And again, it's quite difficult sometimes to get a real, a, a real view of that when you just see them for very short periods of time, which is typical of the doctors. So often I'm getting this information back from what it was like in triage or even them being observed by the receptionist in the waiting room is a good example about how that team might come together. 
how much weight do you put on that interaction, that observed interaction between parent and child? Because in some respects, the paediatric emergency department is not a normal environment. So people aren't going to behave normally in an abnormal place. No, absolutely. You're going to have a, a parent who's usually stressed because there's some element of waiting within for an indefinite time period, which makes everybody angry, particularly in British people who don't like to wait, even though we like queuing, we don't like to wait. It's paradox um, that I've never really understood. Yeah, so, but, so you've got stressed parents, you've got tired children. It's going to be a, a magnified version of whatever their normal home environment is so you might get some important cues but then there's also a really difficult element of social judgment that goes on because we do see people in the department from different social classes from most of us Mm -hmm. uh, in all kinds of situations so it's about being aware that it's not necessarily a judgment on a family but it may be a flag that there's some help that might be required and not just social, but also cultural backgrounds as well, Absolutely. where interactions between parents and children can be normalised for um, different cultures, different parts of society. Mm. And I, I find that's a real dangerous place to go to be politically correct and stuff like that. But actually, part of your assessment is really about having those conversations and, and tackling those different subjects. Yeah, and we do have to have an awareness to a degree about social norms in societal groups other than our own. What is normal for a family from a different religious background, for example, mm-hmm. because what we think might be strange might be quite normal and accepted. Again, there's a lot of grey areas in this. It's At the end of the day, it's about having a responsibility for thinking about whether the child might be at risk and taking some action if that is the case. Okay, so let's have a think about a, a scenario where we've done our assessment and stuff and we've actually got something that we're worried about. So, for instance, let's take a small child who does present with a no real history of what's been going on. This child has presented, they're not moving their left arm. And following investigation, looking at this child, you discover that they have a spiral fracture of the humerus. So at this point, I think we'd all agree that we are concerned about what's going on. We examine the child and they do have a couple of bruises to their back, which makes us a little bit more concerned about what's going on. And now we've we've got the issue of how do we handle that situation? And this is the bit which I think many people are fearful of and many people don't have that confidence to actually take it further forward. And yet it's so important. So do you have any advice for how we how do we proceed when we suspect that something might be going wrong? Yeah, so having made a big thing about this already, I think the first step is that we have to be humble and recognise that we can be wrong about this situation. Because if you approach the situation with humility, it's going to go a lot better than the people who plough in and assume that something awful has happened, even if that turns out to be the case. It's important to say that if you're working in the emergency department, there will be some child protection formalised training available to you. Hopefully you've already had it. Hopefully you know how to access it. But if you haven't asked somebody, even in an adult only ED that doesn't normally see children, there will be access to kids. Kids come in with their parents. And of course, children are inherently portable. So parents don't always select the right ED in an emergency. They will sometimes put their child in their car and drive them to the nearest hospital, whether or not that hospital treats children normally. So you have to be clued up to potentially the pitfalls in seeing kids even if you don't normally treat them. So that's you in the department. So you'll ask for senior advice, you'll get some, some training, hopefully. And exact procedures will vary a little bit depending on where you are. We have quite good safeguarding teams in the UK. They are excellent. I mean, the advice they give is superb and training is superb. They're not always accessible 24-7, which is an issue. Mm. And that, that is an issue, isn't it? Because many of these cases do present out of hours and there can be many different reasons why that should be. Their role can be direct advice, they will occasionally attend, but largely it's about organising the processes around this to make sure that people are doing the right things at the moment, the appropriate referrals take place. And again, it will vary depending on where you are. But in general, if you've got concerns, there's going to be a range of people who get involved in this. For us, 
generally we're going to refer to the inpatient paediatric teams for a further assessment. I'm not sure if that's the case everywhere. I think in some places it can be the paediatric emergency physicians who do that job. I think in Australia, I've not quite worked out exactly whose responsibility it is yet, but I think generally the inpatient paediatric teams do the extensive child protection medical assessments. But there's an element of an assessment that's done in the ED and there is a pro forma that's available on the internet to guide you through that process. And that's often the case in the UK as well. And social services and social care, they need to get involved as well, because there's often wider circumstances that are going on around the family, and they may well be known already to social services. So those links are very important. And I think some of the cases in the UK where things have not gone well are when that communication between different services, the police, the hospital, the GP, social services, the health visitor, the school nurse, all may have little different bits of the picture. And a lot of social protection in the UK now is about bringing all of those elements together so that we don't miss the big picture. Yeah, the social workers have had a very rough time, I think, in the press for what's actually a ridiculously difficult job. They do they do provide great support for families in a, a range of circumstances. So not just in child abuse, but also for parents with significant illness or vulnerably housed or addiction problems. And so they may already be involved with families who are by that the nature of the circumstances that they're in more likely to have other issues going on as well. It's probably worth mentioning at this point that most of what we're talking about today is around physical abuse. We do occasionally see children brought in with suspicion of sexual abuse, although I've got to say that's much more uncommon in my practice. The circumstances around that and our approach is slightly different. So we tend not in the emergency department to get involved in those. They're often dealt with completely separately at sexual assault referral centres. And there's a fantastic one in Manchester that's had a great deal of media coverage and they do a great job for for Manchester certainly they you can self-refer or go through the police and actually as a doctor you can't refer patients there they have to go by the alternative route our job in that in that circumstance is to do the immediate resuscitation that's required and then to make sure that the the workload is goes to the right place and they're dealt with by the right people but we should also do a social services referral in that circumstance better to have two than none at all so it's tricky, isn't it? We, we're still at this point where we're trying to think about what could be going on. And it's a, it's a difficult conversation. It's difficult to do. We've got to be sensitive about how things are going to be taken forward. We've got to be sensitive in our questioning, not accusatory, but exploratory, trying to work out what's going on. It brings us then to the point at which you as the clinician are going to have to sit down with the family who may have an expectation that you're just going to sort out, in this case, the poorly arm and maybe put it in a plaster or put it in a sling or do something like that. And then you're going to have another component of that conversation, which is to say that, well, what would you say? Well, I, I have a script. I have quite a lot of scripts in my head that I use for specific circumstances, and it's helpful to try to make them sound fresh. But I always phrase it that uh, in a sort of, I'm not accusing you of anything at all here. But we know that sometimes children are hurt and it's not an accident. And there are some things about what we've seen today that don't completely make sense. And when that happens, we have a duty to ask some more questions. That's so we can help the children who really need it. So that's for you is going to mean a bit more waiting around and some more questions. But it's really important that you help us with that because that's how we are going to help the most vulnerable children that we see. And that sort of makes it a shared responsibility. And parents often, if you can get them, if you've been humble all the way through and polite, then they're usually on side with that. Have you ever had anybody, I think what what we're getting to is that many people think that that conversation is immediately going to result in an argument or is going to result in people becoming very defensive or even abusive. And that is a barrier to having that conversation. In your experience, have you had many really adversarial reactions to this? It's 
very unusual actually if you if you've approached it from with a sort of humble mindset from the outset they're usually on board but very occasionally you'll get somebody who has been in the department a long time and it's late at night and everyone gets stressed and they respond in, in a way that you don't want and they may take the child and leave and there are some things that you can do in that circumstance if you're concerned so the first thing would be to call the police because they have the powers uh, certainly in the UK, to remove the child or to prevent the removal of the child from hospital so that that child protection situation can be worked out. So I think your advice there is along the lines of don't get involved in a fight about this. No. You state what the facts are and explain the consequences if they do take the child away. But actually, if they do, you're not going to wrestle anybody, I suspect. You're going to refer it on to the appropriate authorities. And, I, and that will change with whatever jurisdiction you're in. But I suspect it's going to be a very similar process wherever you are in the world. Yeah, and quite often, if they're before they'll just bolt with the child, they'll often say, "What happens if we don't want to stay after you've had your humble conversation?" And you say, "Well, unfortunately, I would need to call the police because I have these concerns and I have a duty to act under these circumstances." But let's try to get things done as quickly and smoothly as we can because I know that you don't want to be here any longer than you need to be. I've got to say, in all the time I've been doing it, I think I've only had one episode where somebody's really got very upset with me and it did turn out that it wasn't a non-accidental injury they were actually correct that the patient had turned up with um, a, a perfectly reasonable explanation for why they had had their injury they were tired they had been a busy day it's all of those sort of things that you took place it was a very difficult conversation at that particular time however I've got to say I saw the patient again about a week later and they were charming and apologetic and I think we all recognize that that was just a very stressful situation and nobody reacts well under stress so the vast majority well all the other cases have gone pretty much exactly as you say people have been okay about having that conversation and quite happy to actually have a further assessment because the other thing you can catch in is there are other reasons why this may have occurred and we need to look in for those as well to be honest yeah. So any final thoughts on this? I think just picking up on what you've just said is a, is a good way to close this, saying that actually it can be quite unpleasant for you as a clinician, even if everything goes smoothly. We don't always get a full picture of what the outcome was. We don't always know whether it turned out to be a non-accidental injury or not. And having had to have those thoughts and entertain the idea that children have been hurt intentionally can be quite unpleasant. So it's worth getting some support and having somebody to talk to about these kind of things when they arise. My last thought is if, like me, you're three years into your emergency medicine job and you've never seen a case of non-accidental injury, then maybe just think about it a little bit more. And always, and forevermore, if you've got any concerns, you just ask for some advice. There's plenty of people around who will help you. Yeah, there's some great courses you can go on to learn a bit more about this. And they often involve some role playing of those difficult conversations with some fantastic actors so you can get really uncomfortable, but then realise it's not quite as bad as that in real life. So thank you, Natalie. Um, excellent uh, topic. Definitely a challenge to everybody, I think, who's worked in the middle of at some point. But to be honest, it is something that we should be expert in. It's really important. So we'll have more from the podcast in the next few weeks, more paediatric topics, more HEMS topics. I'm going to do some HEMS topics for us. Oh, I'll give it a go. And, well, we're just enjoying the Adelaide. Well, not the Adelaide sunshine. We're enjoying the Sydney sunshine. I'm off to Adelaide next week, and it's going to be glorious. Thanks for listening. Have fun. Thank you.